Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Before I start today, I'd just like to let you know that PayPal have changed the way that donation buttons are put onto websites. So now, if you'd like to leave a donation, you'll need to do it directly from PayPal to my myth and history email address. The instructions are on the website, and I apologise for any inconvenience caused. As said before, this podcast is, and always will remain, free. But any donations really are very, very welcome. They do help with hosting costs, and I'm very thankful for them. So, on with the story. The Myths and History of Greece and Rome, Chapter 125, Brilliance, Battles and Bardasses. So, the great general and emperor of the Romans, Nicephorus Phocus, is shut in his palace trying to avoid being the target of rocks and stones thrown by his own people. That just goes to show that it takes more than brilliant conquering to make a popular emperor. There was one person in the empire that had definitely had enough of the emperor. Unfortunately for Nicephorus, this one person was his lovely wife Theophano. By the autumn of 969, she had, instead, become very fond of John Zemiskis. John had previously been very loyal to his uncle, but since he'd been sacked from his job as commander of the army, he decided it was time to rebel. He wanted Nicephorus's empire, and he wanted his wife. A plot was hatched. Nicephorus was dedicated to his religion and to his icons. Every day he would go to bed and spend hours worshipping. He would then wrap himself in a hair shirt and sleep on the floor, even though there was a perfectly good bed to sleep in. One night, after the emperor had retired to his room, John Simiskis and three accomplices crossed the Bosphorus. It was a cold and snowy night and the crossing was long and dangerous. The four men had to huddle together for warmth. John and his three friends finally landed and walked to the walls of the palace where John made a secret signal. He let out a low whistle so that Theophano would know he was there and the treacherous empress lowered a rope. One by one the four men climbed up and made their way into the palace and straight to the room of the emperor. The conspirators made their way to the emperor's bed and looked at each other in panic. Where was he? Had he found out about the conspiracy and escaped? They searched hurriedly and worriedly and eventually found the emperor asleep on the floor in front of his icons. Nicephorus was disturbed by the conspirators and woke up. He tried to get up but received an axe blow to the face. Blood flowed and Nicephorus was dragged to the edge of his bed where John Zemiskis was sitting. John cursed him, swore at him, called him ungrateful and loathsome and began to pull out his hair and his beard. He then kicked the emperor savagely before letting his men finish him off. It is said that the brave man cried out to the Virgin Mary for help, but this only seemed to make the attackers up the ferocity of their assault. They smashed his jaw and knocked out his teeth before finishing him off with a hammer. Nicephorus Phocus, Emperor of the Romans, died in his bedroom. He'd been a great general and a good leader, and had he been a bit nicer, he might have reigned for longer. As it was, he was 57 years old and had reigned for just over six years. Just to make sure everyone knew what had happened and who was now in charge, one of the attackers lopped off his head and ran through the palace waving it at the guards. John was immediately declared emperor. He was kind and generous, fantastically strong and a brilliant horseman, archer and javelin thrower. Pretty much the only terrible thing he did in his life was murdering Nicephorus and he soon made up for it by being a very good ruler. Pretty soon, the man who had come to the purple by committing one of the worst assassinations ever became one of the most loved leaders the empire had ever known. 
He was careful to protect the two boys who were the real heirs to the Empire, and Basil and Constantine were kept very safe. John was also a member of two of the important families of the Empire. He was part of the Kirkuas family and married into the Sclerus family. His wife, though, had died a few years earlier. The Kirkuas family originally hailed from Armenia, and John's nickname, Tsimiskis, is thought to have been derived from Armenian words meaning red boot or maybe meaning short in stature. His mother was Nikephorus Phocus's sister. John Tsimiskis was not stupid, and he realised that dispatching a good emperor and assuming the throne by force would always be a stain on his reputation. Some decorum was restored when the body and head of the old emperor were reunited and buried with solemn but quiet dignity in the Church of the Holy Apostles. As the years passed, the legend of the great general grew, and he was beatified by the church. Poems were written about him and his great deeds, and these inspired people to come to the capital and look for his tomb. They would find it tucked away in a quiet corner, and maybe they would raise a wry smile at its inscription, You conquered all but a woman. The new emperor quickly demonstrated his generosity. He gave away all of his massive personal fortune to the people. A large part of it he gave to the people who had suffered most from the terrible harvests and high taxes of Nicephorus's reign. He did this as a penance for the murder, but he had one more thing to do. Everyone knew that Theophano had had a big hand in the plot, and John was forced to banish her. He needed to marry into the Macedonian family in order to be sure of his place, so he married one of Romanus II's sisters. So, welcome, properly, to the Macedonian dynasty, John Samiskis. The reign of John Samiskis is one of almost unbroken success. He arrived in the right place at the right time. He had helped to create the strong, powerful army he now had available to him, and he had some excellent generals to use it. The best of those generals was John himself, as he was about to prove. John also had an able man to run the government for him. Nicephorus had appointed the remaining son of Romanus Lecapanus as Chamberlain. Basil Lecapanus did the job very well indeed, and we will see a little more of him later. Before we carry on with our story, let's introduce two more men who will have a big part to play in the events of the next few years. They are both generals, and they are both called Bardas. Bardas Phocus was the nephew of Nicephorus Phocus. He was sent into exile early in John's reign for obvious reasons. He was said to be so strong that anyone who was hit by his sword was a dead man straight away. Bardas Sclerus was the brother of John's first wife. He was a leading general in the army and was about to become very famous in the empire. In 971, the Russians mounted their most serious attack on the empire yet. Their new leader, Prince Sviatoslav, had invaded Bulgaria and imprisoned the Tsar Boris. Sviatoslav wasn't really interested in Bulgaria though, it was Constantinople he really wanted. So he didn't stop in Bulgar territory, he ploughed on into Thrace and towards the capital of the empire. John tried to negotiate. Like all good leaders, he didn't want to lose men in battles if he could get what he wanted by talking. Sviatoslav was not interested in talking at all. He was coming for one thing, and one thing only. War and conquest. Well, I suppose that's two things. War and conquest, oh yeah, and glory. So the Russian prince was actually only coming for three things. War, conquest and glory. Uh, wait a minute though, he wanted treasure. So the four, oh no, this is getting a bit silly. War, conquest, glory and treasure it is. Sviatoslav had done his homework. He had support from both the Magyars and the Pechenegs and was confident of victory. The two armies met near Adrianople. 
Bardas Scleros was in command of the Imperial Army and only had about 12,000 men. It said the Russian army numbered 300,000, although it was probably more like 50,000. Either way though, the Empire's soldiers were hopelessly outnumbered. Sclerus knew he was outnumbered and he managed to lead the enemy into a trap. The Imperial cavalry began to retreat from the Pechenegs soldiers they'd been fighting and entered a small valley. As the Pechenegs, who were eager to kill as many troops as possible, followed, the cavalry suddenly scattered. The Pechenegs followed and Sclerus turned his army round and slaughtered them. The Imperial army withdrew to Arcadiopolis between Adrianople and Constantinople and the first ever proper battle between the Empire and the Russians was fought. The Russian army was no match for the better trained Imperial troops and they were massacred. There's an important thing to note about the Russians though. As was to be seen over the next thousand years, beating the Russians was one thing but keeping them beaten was another entirely. The problem with fighting against Russian soldiers was that there were so many of them. One big army could be defeated and then another one would be raised and sent into battle. John Zemiskis knew this and he knew he'd have to have another go at them soon. Many leaders in later years have discovered that taking on a committed Russian army, particularly in the harsh Russian winter, is not something which is likely to lead to success. In 971 though, the only recorded revolt against John Zemiskis broke out. Bardas Phokas decided it was time to come out of exile and claim the throne, so he declared himself Basileus. John didn't want any more blood on his hands, so he sent envoys to Phokas saying he would not be harmed if he gave up. Phokas refused. John was too busy preparing for the campaign against the Rus, so he sent Bardas Sclerus with an army to put the rebellion down. He told Sclerus though to do everything he could to avoid any killings. He wanted to bring down the rebels, not kill Bardas Phokas. Sclerus managed to persuade most of Focus's men to give up and change sides, but Focus himself wouldn't agree. Sclerus besieged Focus, who held out as long as he could, but eventually he realised he was beaten. He came out with his wife and family and surrendered to Sclerus. John kept his word and Bardas Focus was sent off to exile in a monastery. This would not be the last time the two Bardases would meet during a rebellion. Now John was free to put the Russians in their place and this time he was going to lead the army himself. He set off from Adrianople at Easter in 972. He marched his army through the mountains until they were looking down at the Bulgar capital Preslav. The city was guarded by a lot of Russian soldiers. The troops only had light armour, which was good enough against infantry, but the heavy lances of the Imperial cavalry caused a lot of damage, and 8,500 Russians were killed. The next day, John and his men marched victoriously into Preslav. They quickly mopped up any resistance and freed the captured Tsar Boris. Those Russians who escaped ran away to the city of Distra, where they joined Sviatoslav himself. John sent a message to Sviatoslav, telling him it was time to give up or else. Sviatoslav ignored the message. He had no intention of giving up. John repaired the fortifications of Preslav and renamed the city Ionopolis after himself. Later in April, he arrived at Distra. As usual, the Imperial army was outnumbered. John knew he wasn't going to be able to take the city by force, so he settled in for a siege. The army sat outside Distra and the navy blockaded the river port on the Danube so that no supplies could get in. The siege lasted three months and the Russians became more and more desperate. In the end, Sviatoslav realised he had no chance and everyone was going to starve if he stayed inside the city, so he gave it one last go. On the 24th of July, 
the Russians burst out of the city and attacked with every last bit of strength they had. If the Imperial Army had been less well trained and commanded by a lesser man, they would have been defeated. The army was well trained though, and the commander was the best of his time. John Simiskis was not going to panic even if the attack was ferocious and the battle lasted all day. Just like the great Aurelian, he pulled the old pretend to retreat trick. The Russians, fighting bravely and with all their might, fell for it completely. John's troops were too well organised and too well trained, and the Russian army was utterly defeated. Sviatoslav asked for peace. All he wanted, he said, was enough food for him and his few remaining soldiers so they could get home. He would give the city and everything he had taken from the empire back to John, including all prisoners. He would also agree to a peace and promise never to invade imperial territory, or Bulgaria, ever again. John agreed. Before going home, Sviatoslav asked to meet with the emperor himself. It was a great meeting. The short, charming and good-looking John meeting the tall, fierce but calm Sviatoslav. The Russian prince had a huge moustache and an almost completely bald head with just two long locks of hair, one hanging down each side of his face. The two men spoke politely and with friendship and agreed that trade between them would be good for both. Sviatoslav departed for Kiev, beaten but still proud. He would never reach his home. The Pechenegs were not pleased that a large number of their men had been killed fighting for the Russians and they took him prisoner as he crossed their land. Kar, the prince of the Pechenegs, had his head cut off and his skull made into a drinking cup. John Simiskis had captured the Bulgar lands from the Russians and freed the Tsar. So, did he send Boris back to his capital and give him back his kingdom? Well, no, not exactly. The Bulgar lands were brought into the empire. A third of the Bulgar empire was now in imperial hands. The other two thirds would be taken, but not by John. There's a man who we'll meet properly soon, who will spend much of his life finishing the job. For now, the remaining Bulgar lands were in the hands of four Bulgar brothers. This was all going rather well, thought John, and perhaps it was time to see if he could grab some more land. So, where could he turn next? Ah yes, to the east. Nicephorus and John had captured Antioch and given the Saracens a good kicking. Perhaps there was more conquering to be done over there. In 972, the Arabs had come back to Syria, furious about losing the territory to the empire. They laid siege to Antioch and it seemed the great city would be lost again. Now it was the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt who was in control after the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad collapsed. John was not bothered whose caliphate it was though. He wasn't going to lose a city that it had taken so much effort to recapture. In 974, John Simiskis marched out of the Golden Gate of Constantinople at the head of a very, very powerful army. At the centre was a group of troops called the Immortals. These men had been hand-picked and trained by the Emperor himself and were the best soldiers in the army. They had shown how good they were at Distra and they would show it again in the east. The army marched towards Syria but then took a detour into Armenia. Here John put the local king in his place and collected more men for his army. Not long after this he stormed into Mesopotamia taking cities and treasure as he went. He soon had to return to the capital to settle a dispute so he left the army in Antioch. The great city was safe once more. By 975 John was back in Syria where he began the most glorious part of his reign. The immortals and the rest of the army won victory after victory after victory. The list of cities returned to imperial control goes on and on and on. 
Emesa fell again, followed by Damascus, Tiberias, Nazareth, Caesarea, Sidon and Beirut. Most of these cities had been in Arab hands for hundreds of years. At last the empire was showing it was still great. It seemed that John was going to take Jerusalem as well, but he began to feel ill and decided to return to the capital. On the way back to Constantinople, it became clear that John Tomiskis was dying. He made it back to the city, but only just. It's been said he was poisoned, but this isn't very likely. People got ill in the ancient world, and the doctors were not as good as they are now. It's much more likely that John caught a disease for which they didn't have a cure. He just had enough strength to take part in a ceremony in which some holy relics brought from the east were installed in the Hagia Sophia. Soon after this, the great John Tomiskis died in his bed, aged 51. His six years on the throne were almost as glorious as the five years of the greatest of the soldier emperors. John Tomiskis had come as close to anyone to equalling the great Aurelian. In some ways he was better. He was generous and compassionate and friendly and fun. He was the kind of guy people liked to have round for a chat or a meal and he was loved by his people. He's remembered with fondness by the Greeks today. Today the main street in Thessalonica is called Tsimiski Street. We shouldn't forget though that he had risen to the purple by carrying out one of the worst assassinations ever. So, what now? There were two people who were the legal emperors but neither of them had ever seemed to have any wish to rule a massive empire. Basil and Constantine were both born in the purple, but neither of them had really expected to rule. By this time though, Basil was determined to rule. He'd not been brought up like his father and grandfather, he was not well educated and he was not a great reader. He wore common clothes and was short and stocky with a heavy beard. Both his father and grandfather had been tall. Unfortunately, there was another man who thought the throne should be his. Bardas Clerus had been John's leading general, and he decided that, just like Nicephorus Phocus and John Tomiskis, he should be a soldier emperor. He immediately declared himself Basileus, and began to march from Mesopotamia towards the capital. He defeated the imperial army twice on the way, before reaching Nicaea, which he took with ease. He then marched on Constantinople, and settled down for a nice siege, which he thought he'd win easily. But he'd not considered Basil the Capinus. The Chamberlain was an enemy of Bardas Sclerus, and he decided there was only one thing for it. Amazingly, he recalled Bardas Phocus from exile, and asked him to come and save the capital and its young emperor. This was indeed a big gamble. Bardas Phocus had rebelled against John, and nobody knew whether he'd be true to Basil II. He swore an oath of loyalty, and swiftly made for Constantinople, but still nobody really knew if he'd be loyal. Basil II's rule depended on what the answer would be to this question. Nervously, the young emperor waited. And next time, we'll find out if the young Basil II has anything to celebrate. Until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.